0: I think it's easy as well to kind of look back on terrible times for other people that are listening and make it sound like it was, it was okay because our love saved us, but no, it it sucked and we fell apart and it was really, really bad. And we were angry and we were sad and all of those feelings. And I, I think people need to know that it's okay to feel all of that because very easy to try and deny ourselves or not let us feel those feelings. I think being told it's okay to feel really angry would have been much more helpful rather we were told you guys need to learn how to thrive, you can't just survive, you have to learn how
1: to thrive through this. Life gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons, into lemonade. Because we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping the on the other side. Let's get juicing. Trigger warning, this episode discusses infant loss. 24-hour help is available through SANS on 1300 072 637 or Lifeline on 13 14. At Priyanka Saha's 36-week scan, doctors discovered an abnormality in the brain development of her and her husband Will's unborn daughter. Lily was diagnosed with an incurable and terminal brain condition called Miladika syndrome. They were told once she was born, she was lucky to live a few years. She would have developmental delays and epilepsy. Lily spent 10 and a half meaningful and loving months with her parents before she took her final breath. That was five years ago. In the time since, Priyanka and Will have established the Lily Calvert Foundation to support children with terminal illnesses. They've also launched the Murmuring of 10 Million, which features first-hand accounts of pregnancy and infant loss to support parents who've been through something similar. Priyanka is a beacon of strength, optimism and hope. I've no doubt after this conversation, you'll be just as in awe of her as I am. I do assure you that despite the heavy subject matter, Priyanka speaks with such positivity. Her resilience is so inspiring. So no matter what you're experiencing right now, I trust you'll finish this episode feeling like the world is a better place with people like Priyanka in it and uplifted by her message as well. Now, just a note, there were a few technical glitches. Thanks to the joys of recording online through lockdown. I hope they don't distract too much. Here's Priyanka. Priyanka, welcome to the Lemonade podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here today. How are you?
0: Thank you for having me. I am very good, thank you. And it's also, it's lovely to be able to connect with you today. Yes.
1: Um, Priyanka, I do want to know what life was like for you growing up. What was, you said you grew up in Tasmania? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Tasmania.
0: I had um, a very lovely childhood. Um, my parents are uh, still live in Tassie um my parents are medical so my dad's a doctor and my mum is midwife they're both mostly retired now um but i just grew up in a yeah in a normal family i've got an older brother and a younger sister and tassie is such a beautiful place to live when you're a child we had um all this land to run around on we had a like a little hobby farm we would go out to on the weekends it was really just bushland we Mm. called it the farm um and my dad comes from india so i also spent a lot of time um being fortunate enough to travel to india we used to go um for school holidays every second year so i grew up um in kind of experiencing that culture as well and um understanding perspective from that unique perspective i think at an early age um and a lot of those rites of passages that you know going out Um, when you're a teenager and drinking and doing that sort of stuff I got to do that in India as well as in Australia with my cousins over there so um, yeah it was a beautiful childhood my parents are really supportive parents and I think uh, a lot of the lessons they taught me that as a child came out later on in life to really help me and I remember whenever we would be going to school for like a school cross country or a run or something, you know, one of those athletics or swimming carnival, dad would always give us a pep talk and he would always say in his Indian accent, like you just go with confidence, never give up, just be determined. And even if you don't win, just keep going. Um, And it's very simple but it's something that came back to me later on in life. And I think he said it enough that it's sort of ingrained in me. It's like, it actually doesn't matter if you don't win. What matters is that you can still keep going through the toughest times mm-hmm. um, because often life will throw things at you where you're certainly not winning, but your ability to kind of claw your way back out is what matters.
1: Mm. Um Absolutely. I wonder if that plays any part because when I was doing my research into you, your CV is extremely impressive. Your work, your career <laughs> life as well. So I wonder if that determination and that grit um, played a part in your work life as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do?
0: Yeah, I um, so I'm a lawyer. Well, I did a law degree and I practiced as a lawyer for for a few years. Um, I work predominantly in like privacy and technology and cybersecurity. So I worked across federal government um, and the corporate sector for quite a while. And now I run a business called resilience by design and we do um, a lot of cybersecurity awareness training for businesses, the healthcare sector um, particularly with all the stuff that's happening in telehealth with COVID. So a lot of it is just uh, basic training for for people who don't know a lot about security and how they can make sure that their business is Mm. um, protected um, and so you kind of bring in the legal side of that too. And I, I, worked for a long time with children, um, as a children's lawyer and, um, online safety, cyber bullying and that sort of thing.
1: Oh my gosh. You're um, so, in- you're so impressive. You're so <laughs> intelligent. Oh, thank and you. <laughs> can, you tell, can you tell me, um, and then in your personal life, I suppose you met your husband. How long have you guys been together?
0: Uh, someone asked me yesterday and I was like, uh, oh, 13 years, maybe more, um, yeah. A long time. <laughs> a long time is the answer. <laughs> we, were married, we were married in 2013. Um, and yeah, we met when I was at the end of my uni degree in a nightclub.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> we're all great romances stud. obviously yeah. though. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. and you guys have been through so much together in that time. And we are going getting yeah. into that because you fell pregnant with your first child, Lily. Um, what was it like that day when you found out you were pregnant with her?
0: Well, with Lily, I mean, interestingly, before Lily, actually, my first pregnancy was an ectopic pregnancy. So it was a really traumatic pregnancy, but that was my first experience of pregnancy. So in terms of that happy, lovely, um, I'm pregnant thing, I guess that happened in that very first pregnancy when I was really innocent to what can go wrong. Um, So that was in 2015. And um, that day was like, I did the pregnancy test. I was like, Oh my goodness, I'm pregnant. I met Will. We were living in Sydney at the time. I met him at um, the town hall station where he had finished work. And I was like, guess what? And he guessed. And, you know, we were so excited and so happy. Um, Unfortunately that pregnancy was ectopic, which means that the baby was growing in my fallopian tube um, with the embryo and it wasn't diagnosed. So, um, it ended up rupturing, and I was bleeding internally, and I had to have an emergency surgery. So one fallopian tube was removed, and it was extremely traumatic because it wasn't planned. I was close, apparently close to death. I had so much blood, so much internal bleeding that hadn't um, been picked up on. Um, and will, unfortunately, it was overseas at the time. So my God, so that yeah. that happened. Um and then a few months later we went on a beautiful trip for a friend's wedding in South Africa, back back when you could go on mm, holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we got back from South Africa was when I I found out that I was pregnant again. And at the time Will was doing a lot of work overseas. So once again, he was overseas. Um and I just freaked out. So yeah, that's the long answer to how how did you feel? I actually felt terrified because when you've had one ectopic, you're at risk of having another. Yep. Um and so it wasn't ever that, that fun um, until a few weeks later. So I think by the time I got to 12 weeks with Lily, I'd calmed down and I was able to kind of ease into it and enjoy what was meant to be this really healthy, amazing, wonderful pregnancy. And it was up until 36 weeks.
1: Can you tell us about that? You went in for a routine scan, as you said, the 36-week one, and that's the one that you do usually before you meet the baby.
0: Mm. Did you just
1: go in thinking it was just a normal day and can you Mm. describe what happened?
0: Yeah, I very clearly remember Will and I both in our work clothes um, driving up Punt Road to the Epworth Freemasons in East Melbourne and I look back on it almost with like rose-coloured glasses, I guess. It it feels like they're two different people in a different story that have continued off into another universe. Um, You know, we were chattering. I'd brought the DVD that they can keep, um, they record a picture or the video of the ultrasound and um, we were both back off to work that morning. And um, it just, yeah, it was a terrible, terrible thing to go into an ultrasound like that. Um, Everything was normal. I remember her scanning, 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 um, pointing things out. But she did keep going back to the baby's head. It was like she couldn't see something. And then um, she sort of clicked and scanned and it went for too long. And um, I remember just kind of breaking out into this hot sweat, like my body knew something was wrong before I'd been told. Um, And she said, I'm really sorry, but I just can't see the brain development that i would expect to see at this stage and um we just didn't know what that meant we knew that it was bad but we didn't know if you know we immediately i immediately assumed that maybe the machine was just faulty or dodgy and you couldn't get to 36 weeks pregnant and pass every test i'd done you know your basic nipt yeah. testing i would had all the ultrasounds and um you know, pass them with flying colours. But what I later learnt was that the 20-week ultrasound, which is for many people the last ultrasound they'll have, um, it doesn't, the baby, any baby's brain won't have developed enough at 20 weeks, so the brain doesn't start to develop with grooves and folds until after 20 weeks. Um, So at 20 weeks, Lily's brain was normal. But what didn't occur is for the next you know, 15 to 20 weeks, the brain development that would normally occur in a baby with lots of grooves and folds, you know, when you see a picture of a brain, what it looks like, um, that hadn't happened, but there was no way of knowing that. And so it it kind of makes you realise that there are so many vulnerabilities in the healthcare system and so much faith that we place on things going correctly Um, and, you know, when it could have been picked up if it was routine to have more ultrasounds not that they could really have done anything, but, you know, knowing earlier and knowledge, knowledge is power, I think. So,
1: yeah. they, They weren't able to give you a diagnosis on that day. Is that right? Is that all they said is that her brain has not formed properly? Is that correct?
0: Yeah. So they weren't able to give a diagnosis. We had to go on to do a fetal MRI. Um, And so I did that two days later. And by that stage we were referred into geneticists as well. Um, We were still hanging on to hope that something was wrong or it wasn't as bad as they thought. Um, And looking back on it now, I can see that they all knew it was really bad. Um, We did the fetal MRI. And then after that we sat down with the genetics team um, and he took... I mean, I, this his guy took us into a room. I remember checking in and like the receptionist said something about us having a really hard time. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, this is so bad. Everyone knows. Um, and then he sat us down and he said, your baby has a condition known as, so at that stage they just gave it the broad term, listen cephaly or listen carefully. Um, and he started to talk about what that meant and, it was catastrophic. You know, I mean, this baby's brain hadn't developed. He said, your baby will never walk or talk. Your baby might not ever sit up. Your baby will have severe intellectual disabilities. Your baby will die, but we don't know when it could, you know, the baby could live for 10 years or it could live for two, two years. Um, We don't know the severity yet, but we know that this is really, really bad. Um, And we, (laughs) I mean, it's, complete shock when you get told something like that. Um, I would not wish those feelings on my worst enemy. I kind of went into what Will calls reporter mode, which is funny. So I, I wanted to know what we could do, who we could speak to, what happened next, who the best people were. And I remember saying to him, I don't want to, you know, I want to know who the best um, pediatrician is and I want to know who the best neurologist is and what steps we make from here. Um, So that kind of survival, that ruthless survival (laughs) instinct kicked in, I think. And, um, I did fall back into work mode a little bit as well, just to kind of keep functioning, but we left that building. Um, and they said to us, you know, you're probably in shock. You need to go and get a hot chocolate or something. There was no hope. Like there was literally no hope given to us that day. And I think that there is a lot more hope that can be given. Um, but there was no hope given to us. It was horrendous. And we drove home and I remember vomiting on myself. I was in such shock. It was awful. Um, so yeah, that happened. And then we had like weeks to wait until Lily came. Um, and we, it was kind of just this torturous time of waiting for a baby to come along. Um, It was horrendous. My mum flew over to look after us and she basically just, you know, fed us, fed and kept the house going and was there for me to cry on. Um, And we, Will and I just walked. We walked and walked. I don't know how it walked when I was so pregnant, but we would walk and talk and try and figure out things. Um, And it was a really dark time. It was really bad. And it's not a but, it's and. Amongst all that darkness, we like, we felt this like intense love for each other because we we're in it together, and it was just us and this little baby. And it's like it's really hard to describe that feeling, but it, it, I, I'm grateful for it. It was like it was forged in fire, this fierce, fierce love that we we're in this together. No one else was in it, even though we had all this support from family and friends. No one else. To really understand it. Um, and yeah, it's kind of what got us through. I think mm. having that, mm. well, those that feelings gives me of love
1: goosebumps, um, you saying mm. that that's really, cause you hear so many examples of things like that happening and couples falling apart. So it's really mm. beautiful to hear that. It made you guys. Yeah. That and using the word and it made you both so much stronger. So that's so special.
0: Yeah, I think we were, we were very lucky because that just happened very naturally. But, you know, I think it's easy as well to kind of look back on terrible times for other people that are listening and make it sound like it was, it was okay because our love saved us, but no, it, it sucked and we fell apart and it was really, really bad, um, and we were angry and we were sad and all of those feelings. And I, I think people need to know that it's okay to feel all of that uh, because very easy to try and deny ourselves or not let us feel those feelings. Um, and I don't think we got that advice even from the genetics and the geneticists and the counsellors and all of that stuff. I think being told it, it's okay to feel really angry would have been much more helpful. Um, rather, we were told you know, you guys need to learn how to thrive. You can't just survive. You have to learn how to thrive through this and how to keep going. Um,
1: I don't understand how you could be doing that during that time. You, and that's just so unhelpful.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So unhelpful. So, um, you know, we, yeah, there's a lot of strange, strange things that Mm. happened in that space um, but the other thing that that extra time gave us, you know, it was a waiting game until Lily was born was time to think about what her life would be like. And so, uh, for me, I kind of fell back on my legal training, which with children was about, you know, when you're in the family law or the courts or that sort of thing, you're acting, you're making decisions, um, usually that are in the best interest of a child And that doesn't necessarily mean the best interests of me as mum or Will as dad, but purely as what is in this baby's best interest. Um, And so we spoke about that for ages coming from such a place of love and it got us to the point of understanding what um, kind of paediatric palliative care would mean um, and making a plan that we wanted Lily's life to be as good as it possibly could be and as least medicalised um, and uh, just to really enhance the quality of her life, even if that meant that there were some interventions we wouldn't take um, and some things we wouldn't do. So we were able to then kind of create a team of doctors around us who who really understood and supported that. And we had a brilliant paediatrician, who, um, Dr John Mills, who worked with us and he was just so supportive and wonderful. Um, And a lot of support from the uh, Victorian paediatric palliative care teams. Um, They work with families. I think a lot of people hear palliative care and they think that means death straight away, but it really doesn't. They often work with families for years um, and it's about the paediatric palliative care team will work with families for years and years often, and they can provide equipment. They can help you with getting Therapies in place, they can provide support to you and your family, they can get counselling support. It's not just about like a dark room where someone's dying. It's much more about an active approach to your child's life. But some of the things they're more experienced in is pain control. How can we make Mm. sure that we're enhancing quality of life and optimising pain um, and able to make decisions that aren't necessarily about life at all costs but more about quality of life at all costs Um, and that philosophy really appealed to us because we knew we couldn't fix lily we couldn't cure her but we could give her the best possible life while she was here um
1: yeah so we did then she was born and what was that day like what do you remember from that day
0: Uh, It was such a crazy time because we were really excited. We were having our first baby, but it was also devastating. And by then we'd made a plan um, to not do any crazy interventions um, so that if she was to pass away, rather than it being really traumatic and her being, you know, on machines and all of that stuff, we could just hold her in our arms. So the plan was for her to be born and to be placed straight into my arms and for Will to be able to hold her to cut the cord And um, she was in quite a lot of um, she was born and she was having a lot of struggle breathing immediately. So they weren't sure how long she would live for. So we stuck to the plan. She was put straight on my chest, this beautiful, tiny little baby. Um, She was two and a half kilos, I think. And um, not as small as they thought she might be. So one of the conditions can be that really small baby Um, but a bit bigger. So I'd bought all these tiny clothes because we'd been told that she was measuring really small. Once again, ultrasound is not um, (laughs) the be all and the end all because she wasn't that small. Two and a half kilos is small, but it's not tiny. Um, And then she did pull through. So she began to breathe quite well on her own um, and she made it through the night. And once she'd made it through the night, um, we're all like, this baby's not going anywhere and we we're like this is great so there were con- there were concerns about whether she would be able to feed as well or whether she'd need a nasogastric tube um and she was able to feed um first with just a little syringe then a bottle and then by day I was day three or f- day three she actually breastfed wow. so which was like incredible um And yeah, she thrived. We had five days in hospital and we were able to come home.
1: What was it like that 24 hours between, because I did read you say that that 24 hours was crucial to know she would survive beyond that. Was it just this dichotomy of trying to absorb every moment, but also I guess this, I I know you, you don't know what the next minute was going to bring. What did you, what was that like? To be honest, I think
0: we were in a lot of shock Um, So, because we did go to sleep after she was born. And I remember being like, this is so weird. We shouldn't be sleeping. We should be with her. Um, Like she was right next to me. So she was there. I remember opening my eyes every two minutes. So I probably didn't really sleep, but also I'd just given birth. So I was exhausted. Um, And then my mum, my mum was there. So she came that at midnight and saw Lily. And then the next morning, our family had flown in. Um, and we tried to make it a celebration and a party. So there was champagne, there was flowers, everybody was there and people just loved her. And, um, after those 24 hours, when we knew she was going to leave that shock kind of wore off a bit and we were able to buy people, you know, my sister went and bought clothes for her. There was a lot of stuff we were holding off from doing because it's just too sad. Like I hadn't, I had obsessively decorated this nursery and labelled all these clothes. But then at 36 weeks, I just stopped doing everything because it just hurt too much to even go into that nursery. We didn't know if this baby was coming home. And then suddenly the baby was coming home. So it was like, we had to play catch up um, a little bit, but yeah, it was a really beautiful time tainted with sadness. I think there was, yeah. you know, this, this intensity that comes with not knowing. And there was also this, weirdness in that the doctors would say things like she might not survive through the night and then they might say oh but babies with listen carefully can live for 10 years they can live for 20 years so we were never sure should we be like really intensely savoring every single moment or should we be preparing for the next 10 to 20 years Mm. and that uncertainty in my mind was almost worse than being told right you've got two weeks make the most of it because if you've got two weeks then maybe you'll take a photo and pretend they're having a birthday every day or you know do make special moments whereas if you've maybe got 10 years are you overreacting are you being silly yeah. if you're making you know so that was what i would call a head fuck mm-hmm. um, every day like
1: um yeah it was weird it wasn't until lily was born as well she was able to be formally diagnosed is that correct are you able to share with us what she was diagnosed with
0: yes so when she was born they sent off um samples of the placenta the cord um and then later did a saliva swab to get a definitive answer and it was a condition called melodica syndrome which is the most extreme form of lysencephaly. babies with Milodica syndrome well the, the research says they rarely live past two years a lot of the research is outdated, so many babies don't make it to two years and others seem to live for longer. Um, it meant, so it's a micro-deletion on a chromosome, chromosome 17p13.33, um, but it meant that that the severity of the smoothness of her brain was at the most extreme end and um, and that, you know, she would suffer from seizures and epilepsy and all sorts of things. Um, in the first few weeks, probably the first three months, months—September, October, yeah, first three months, she was very much a normal newborn baby. And I'm forever grateful that we got to have that beautiful, peaceful newborn time together. She slept fairly well. You know, we got to do all those lovely things that you do. And we just went into our little baby bubble and stayed home. But... You know, did nice things with her and got used to the cycle of having a new baby. Um, and at times we could pretend that there was nothing wrong, you know, and then you'd get the phone call from the doctor saying the test results have come back and it is the most severe form. Or we'd go back to those genetic counselors who would tell us things that she would never do. Um, and it was awful. We started to loathe going to those appointments because they gave us this awful feeling of negativity, except for when we went to our pediatrician, we always left with hope from him. And I think it said a lot about just the way that you speak to people when they're in a terrible time. Um, There was lots of mixed messages from the genetics and the genetic counseling teams who when i in my mind should have been the best at this stuff because that's yeah. what they do every day mm. um you know one day they'd be like you guys look like you're doing really well and then the next time we'd see them they'd say oh last time we thought you really weren't coping how are you going and we're like what what and i think now looking back on it they actually were seeing too many people and they were confusing us
1: what was it like in these months in these 10 10 and a half months being lily's mum was wonderful i mean there was this intensity to everything
0: we were doing um she was you know about three months she started to have seizures and she became very unwell um so we were parent we were nurse we were doctor we were therapist but we made our world small we lived in a little um you know our, we had our family and close friends and um little kind of peaceful bubble and there was a lot of beauty in those moments you know I it was only 10 months but it feels like it was a lot longer and it was because it was her whole lifetime um and yeah even though it was so horrible and sad it was also wonderful and peaceful and filled with joy and simple moments um you know we learned that the really important things in life are being able to have a good laugh and um just together and you know enjoy really simple things like a cup of tea and having a giggle with your friends and um being surrounded by love so it was hard I don't want to kind of take from that and I'm happy to talk about that in a moment but there there was mostly this kind of feeling of beauty and peace and love um and Lily brought so much joy to all of us and to our families like she kind of brought um both my family and Wills family together in this really in beautiful way as well they're so close now too so having loved someone that they all loved the same person and they still love her and celebrate her and remember her so of course i'd give anything to have lily here today but if i couldn't i wouldn't change i wouldn't not have that
1: experience
0: i'd do it again and again and again just to have that time with her
1: wow That's such incredible perspective. I've just got all all the chills and the goosebumps and the tears listening to you. Um, Then on one, there was, you know, one particularly awful day. As we said, ten and a half months in, everything did change. Can you talk to us about that day? Yeah, so Lily,
0: I mean, she, part of the condition was seizures and my experience of seizures before Lily was, you know, the kid in grade five at school who had one seizure every, I don't know, every nine months and um, then he'd be fine. So I was very naive to what seizures meant. Um, Lily had a form of seizure called infantile spasms, which cause regressions. So they can cause further damage in the brain as well. So she uh, by three months had kind of learnt to roll over and smile and interact and hold her head up. Um, but all, she lost all of those abilities um, and we did different types of treatments. We did steroid treatment. um, And then we got to the stage where the the only option left was a medication, which um, a lot of parents will use. um, And in certain circumstances is entirely appropriate, but it can cause peripheral blindness, sometimes full blindness. Um, And i strongly didn't want lily to have that medication because we had a baby that couldn't do anything but she could see she could yeah. hear um and it didn't feel right to me to take that from her so i think there was a real lesson there in understanding that what might be right for most people isn't always right for everyone and i i mean definitely have been pondering that recently with so much in the media about medical interventions and vaccinations and that sort of thing it's like there will always be a time where the thing that is correct for everybody else isn't correct for your child um, and this was one of them and after i explained that to the doctors they were like oh yeah actually we understand what you're saying so we'll try these alternatives there's always an alternative yeah um, so you know there's a parent who has a sick child and they're questioning something you know push for an alternative ask and do do your research um, because there will be an alternative it might not be as good or it might be better um so we tried different alternatives unfortunately lily's seizures never went away and they contributed to the reason why she died but with melodica syndrome it's hard to say exactly why you die essentially her brain couldn't tell her body her heart to keep circulating blood um and we had a week where she just went downhill um and we still had Lily at home. So we were really lucky. We'd made this plan with her medical team that we would try and keep her at home if we could. And um, she only actually went to hospital once in her life after she was born. And then we did kind of a hospital in the home program. So this week after um, she just kept getting sicker and sicker and I'd had the nurse in the middle of the night come out and um, we had planned to fly up to Queensland to see my brother and his family and our pediatrician for once just said, no, don't do it. And he'd been really supportive. We'd taken Lily to Noosa. She went to New Zealand. She'd been to Tassie many times. Um, you know, we'd done the Great Ocean Road. She did a lot of travel in her 10 months. But this week, um, John just said, look, I don't think that you should do it. Um, if You you know, if you want to, we can figure out a way. But I really don't think you could do it. She might die on the airplane. And that's when I was like, oh, well, we're here. I didn't realise we'd arrived here. So my brother and his children and wife flew down instead. Because so we were flying out for a birthday party. So we had a birthday party in our house and Lily, you know, was front and center of the birthday party. It was my niece's party. And Lily gave her all that weekend. She was bright and alert and interactive with the kids and I don't know she was a 10 month old baby, but I think she knew she was giving everything she had. And um, after they left, she just had nothing left to give. Um, She was, we had a really terrible night and we went to the doctor again the next day and he talked us through what might happen and what it might look like. Um, And then the next day Um, we're kind of doing night shifts, Will and I, by then as well. So I look back on our plan to do everything ourselves, and we probably could have asked for more help. Um, So I'd done a night shift and Will had woken up at five and taken um, Lily that morning and she'd been really bright and bubbly with him again. She ate all her breakfast and they had this cute little time together and he gave her a bath and then we went and got, I woke up and we went and got coffees together we came back and she seemed like she'd turned a corner again. So I said to Will, um, why don't you go and have a beer with your mates and we'll just chill out here on the couch. And, um, we made a plan for our friends to come around and have pizza with us. And so will went and had pizza and uh, he went had a drink with his mates and Lily and I just lay on the couch and she lay on top of me, um, that whole day. Um, and I just held her like I even held her when I went to get, I remember eating snacks on her head. It's like, you know, I was eating cheese and crackers and she was lying on my chest and then I got up to get one more cheese and crackers and I held her When um, I was watching The Good Wife, just episodes. Um, and then my girlfriend, Claire, came in the afternoon for the pizza with her little son and her husband was still out with Will having a beer um, and they came back shortly after. And Lily had another seizure, so I um, said to Claire, "Can you just hold her while I grab her rescue meds?" And I just went to the kitchen, grabbed them, and came back. And Claire was still holding Lily, and she said, "I think she stopped breathing." Mm. And so I took Lily, and you know, tried to make her breathe again and to take the medicine. But she she really stopped breathing. Um, so we Will and I just grabbed her and went into our bedroom and held her and um tried desperately in the beginning you tried desperately to wake her back up and get her to come back and you know we called the um doctors we didn't call the ambulance the plan was to call the palliative care team so they would come to the house with the doctor straight away um and when you're in that when you're in palliative care it's not meant to be in an emergency in the same way but you still go into emergency mode um And then it was like we just realised this was it. So we stopped the kind of wild screaming and we just held her and we cried and we held her. And it felt like an eternity until the doctor was the nurse who came um, and confirmed that she had passed away. Um, And yeah, we, we, we just held her for hours. Um, they, we spoke to the nurse about what happens next and she said she can stay here with you. So she stayed with us that night and we gave her a bath and we changed her. Um, and we had, uh, I'd spoken to my friend Claire about how I had this image in my head of when Lily died, that there'd be music and candles and all this stuff. And the doctor had sort of said, that's not probably what it's going to be like. Um, when I came out of our bedroom, my girlfriend had lit all the candles and was playing the music. And, um, we had a family friend, a priest who came around and he held Lily as well and, um, did some blessings, um, for her. And then he, he left her with us and she spent the night with us, uh, which sounds weird, but it wasn't weird at all. It was really normal. And then the next day we, um, we're able to use a room at uh very special kids which is the hospice in melbourne the pediatric hospice it's incredible um they've got a room there, bereavement room and uh cuddle cot which is a cold cot that babies can can go in instead of going to the morgue so it meant that um we could visit her any day up until the funeral and that probably sounds very strange if you haven't you know, experienced a death like this. But being able to go to a room where Lily was in a cot and she looked perfect um, was a really important way to start grieving and we were able to go any day. We could have stayed, had a little bedroom next to it if we wanted to, we could stay there. But fortunately, Very Special Kids isn't far from where we live. Um, so we spent a lot of time just visiting her and singing and crying and Talking and our family would all come. Um, everyone got to say goodbye to her before her funeral.
1: What were those after her funeral and the days afterwards? Do you remember much, or was it all just this blur? Um, it's
0: weird. Parts of it are really clear, and parts of it are uh, a blur. There was a lot of numbness, a lot of. Guilt, and I think that's normal. Was like, why couldn't we save her? Maybe we should have gone to the hospital, or maybe we should have tried that medication that would have made her blind, or maybe we should have had her intubated. So there was a lot of that. Maybe we gave her too much of this medication, or you know, a, a lot of um, questioning. So we did a lot of work with counselors and psychologists to come to terms with that I think there's always going to be a guilt if you can't save your child I always will feel guilty for it and then I would torture myself over why didn't I let her have ice cream she never tasted chocolate you know stuff like that um I still do torture myself over that um the other insane thing that happened is that the couple of days after her funeral I um Thought that I had my period at the funeral, uh, but I didn't. And then I was like, oh, what happened? Um, I did a pregnancy test and I was pregnant. Oh my God. It was just too much to take in. Um, I remember calling my obstetrician and saying, well, I'm pregnant. I know I need to make sure it's not an ectopic pregnancy um we've booked flights to go to Japan because we just wanted to get out of there can I still go as long as you're back by the time you're seven weeks we'll do an ultrasound then it won't be a problem um and I just couldn't engage with being pregnant it was just far too much to take in and I just didn't believe I'd get to have a baby um so we went off to Japan and we just wandered around in a daze I spent a lot of time reading Trashy, alternating between lying in bed, staring at the wall, reading trashy books, watching Harry Potter, which saved us. Harry Potter saved us in our early diagnosis days and later on was like our time out. Um, and then setting up Lily's Foundation, yeah. which gave me this new lease of life and all this energy to throw into something.
1: Um, I and to apparently... Sorry,
0: you go. Yeah, sorry. I was <laughs> going to say, apparently we had dinner parties. We threw dinner parties for people, which I can't even really remember wow. doing, but we did. Um, I think we just wanted to feed and nurture something or someone. So we had our friends around for dinner, and they were all so kind and lovely. Um, but yeah,
1: I do want to hear about the foundation because not long after she did pass, Lily passed away. You decided to start the Lily Calvert Foundation and the Murmuring of Ten Million. Can you talk to us about both of those things and what they are and why? it was so important for you in those days to turn this pain into some kind of purpose.
0: Yeah. So it was actually our friend, um, our really good friends came to us with this idea just before the funeral that they wanted to do something. um, And how would we feel about setting up kind of like, Oh, a charity. That's, that's brilliant. And I knew straight away that that was what, that was perfect. And to do something for other families in Lily's name um, would help. And if we could just help one or two families from that were going through this, that, that would make things better in some way. It doesn't make anything worthwhile. It doesn't make Lily's life more or less meaningful. And I think I'm, you know, I love Lily's fund and everything we do with it, but it's also important for other people. Well, I think it's important to say you don't have to, you don't have to set up an incredible foundation. You don't have to do all these things. Your child's life is enough. They lived. You don't need to do all of these things Um, because sometimes it's very easy to look at what other people do and think, oh, I haven't done enough in my child's name. I haven't done enough to change things. You don't need to because their life is enough. Um, For me, it gave me something to throw myself into and we decided to do a fundraiser Um, we decided really quickly that we wanted to work in paediatric palliative care to support families where there was no hope because there's so many charities which are wonderful charities but they're mostly about a cure Um, so we just wanted to be able to support families in whatever way quite broadly um, whether it is into research in paediatric palliative care or research into things like cbd and cannabis oil in helping seizures Um, grief support for other people going through it and music therapy uh, because Lily loved music therapy. Mm. It was her favorite thing. So uh, the foundation, yeah, we set up and we did our first fundraiser a few months after Lily died. Um, And our main program at the moment is a program that is a music therapy um, uh, kits. we work with a business called tiny tones, um, which are a beautiful musical instrument company they're they're incredible they have these beautiful wooden sound making instruments and they donate the instruments for our music therapy kits that we have in hospitals around australia and new zealand wow and um tiny tones actually donate five dollars from every sale so um if you need to buy a present for a child (laughs) or anything please head over to their um, to their website because $5 from every single sale goes towards the kits. And the music therapy kits are uh, um, designed to be used for music therapy and we pr- we created them with um, input from a music therapist um and also from Jimmy Rees, who, you know, former child musician, more comedian now, but he helped to curate the playlist that we have in the kits. So there's a little QR code you can scan to get you started with music therapy um, and different instruments that are all wow. designed to be used. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're all around the country and if they're not in your hospital, please get in touch with me or in your palliative care program. Um, and we also support things like um, supported accommodation at hospices for families um, and a music therapy program at very special kids, which is about training staff to be able to incorporate elements of music therapy into their daily care of patients uh, because music can really help make things less painful and less stressful. And um, yeah, so we, we've kind of got a real music therapy focus at the moment. Um, but... Recently, I started the new platform, The Murmuring of 10 Million, and it's based on a quote um, by a woman called Mirabai Starr, and she talks about the murmuring of 10 million women backwards and forwards in time, lifting each other up, um, grieving women. And I read this quote early on in my grief, um, and I kept it because it really struck me, um, you know, this concept of women supporting other women and holding them in their grief. And that has definitely been my experience on social media. I, um, kind of entered into social media, like Instagram really after Lily died, I'd taken myself off while she was alive. And I met so many beautiful mothers who were grieving on the same timetable as me and also fathers, some really incredible fathers. So that's kind of like the murmuring of 10 million is a space for everyone. It's not gendered. Um, And I every day have lots of people sharing their stories of their children with me. And I got to a stage where I really wanted to be able to share their children as well. So we created the platform. um, And it's just a space for people to share their children. The children can be children with life limiting illnesses who are living, children who have passed away or stories of loss at birth, um, The idea is to create a space where people can find um, other people who've got kids with the same, um, Mm. whether it be a disability or medical condition, whatever it is, and to be able to connect with them. So anyone can share a story too. I I found often that um, a lot of places like you have to be quite famous to be able to share your story Mm. or you have to have a really large following or you have to, you know, Whereas I think every child's story deserves to be told. So this is a space for everyone's story to be told. Um, and we just ask that people are willing to be um, contacted. So whether they provide yeah. an email address or their social media so that if a family finds them and their child's got the same condition, they can reach out um, and say, hey, can you help or what do you think of this? So,
1: what a fantastic idea. That is um, so amazing. How does it feel knowing that you're helping people that were just like you in this way? I think for me, I know how hard it
0: was to not have anyone. And I was lucky enough to find a couple of people while Lily were alive um, that I emailed. And there was one woman in particular, Laurie and America, whose little girl Lucy lessons from Lucy. And she's written her story on the site to helped to guide us. And without Laurie, I, you know, I think it would have been, um, much harder i'm really Mm. grateful for her she would email me and i would email her questions and she would just give me advice and and it was really really good um so to be able to give back in any small way just i don't know it it helps i think it helps me to know that i can help others
1: um and
0: i love doing it it gives me kind of purpose and meaning yeah
1: absolutely and i we touched on right at the start that um how you've spoken about that people expected you to just be getting over this and moving on. And why are you still talking about it? can you talk to me about that? Because that absolutely floors me that anyone would have that mentality. What did you experience? I, I think
0: we had always, you know, thought up until Lily died. So i never thought about grief, to be honest, I've been grieving and I hadn't really realized it that yep. whole, you know, that whole time of her life. Then she died. And I was like, Oh, what happens now? I didn't hmm. get past this stage and so it was a shock first to kind of go oh now we enter the grieving oh I don't think this will ever end and to a certain extent grief doesn't end because grief is love and love you know doesn't end after somebody dies but um the shocking part I think was that realizing that no one and and I, I say this with we had a beautiful very close group of friends who were super supportive um So it wasn't them. They kind of got it very quickly and very quickly. We were like, we want to talk about Lily. We want to say her name and we want you guys to still say her name. Don't be afraid. Um, But I think straight after someone dies, you realise that everyone's too afraid to say anything that they don't, you know, they're worried that mentioning the name will upset you. And it's like, oh, we haven't forgotten. Like. Yeah. Just mentioning her name isn't going to make us go, oh, that's right. My baby died. I'm so sad now. It's like, no, we live with this every day. Mentioning her name makes us happy. Um, and, um, you know, the more that you talk about it, the better it is. But I remember someone saying to me outside our little group, um, like a week or two after she died, so are you going to go, when are you going back to work? You'll be going back to work soon. And I remember just thinking, I haven't even, mm. what? I'm like, what? Um, I haven't thought about work. Um, I don't know when I'll be going back to work. Um, Maybe soon. Um, And then just going away and being like, what? Should I be going back to work and being really confused by it? And it was just things like that. And then, yeah. you know, I, I wanted to talk about my child to everyone. And I, I quickly learned how awkward it was when you mentioned your baby that had died. And then the conversation just went nowhere or someone didn't say, I'm sorry. Like it's so simple to just say, I'm so sorry. And that still gets me if I talk about Lily and often, you know, even in a medical setting, so it's, like, it's not hard it's like to say, stony. I'm
1: sorry. Is it just like a stony
0: face? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, come on guys, like particularly I think if you work in um, fertility or pregnancy and that sort of thing, it's like learn that
1: just saying, I'm so sorry that happened validate, to you. Just that, validate, validate that person's experience. Absolutely. You are talking to me just two days after what would have been Lily's, fir- Lily's fifth birthday is my yeah. understanding. How are yeah. you feeling
0: um her birthday we always see as a celebration and yeah it's very sad there's a sadness to celebrating a fifth birthday without that person there um but we always try and make it a moment of joy where we capture those feelings we had in the hospital where we realized she wasn't dying straight away and we all had our champagne and we toasted and we had a little party um so we have a birthday party every year uh, we always have a cake some years it's you know really elaborate cake others it's not so much last year we did little party boxes that we dropped at our friends houses because mm. we we're in lockdown um, and this year my sister-in-law made a cake and it was very similar to the cake that we had when they flew down um, the week before lily died and we just had a little afternoon tea party with all the cousins um, the little kids and things and it was really lovely it's always sad and it's very sad to think there should be a five-year-old here. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm so grateful to have Jasper, my little boy, who's three. Uh, but you know, there'll always be somebody missing and I feel like I've been trying to have children for so long and it's just like been hard from that point of view. Um, but Lily is a part of our life every day. We talk about her every day. I think about her every night. Um, we, you know, we say goodnight to her. Jasper talks about her. Mm. Um, she's very much a present part of our life.
1: How do you think what, how has this and everything that's happened to you changed you as a person? Who are you now?
0: I am a very different person to the person that came before and a better person. I have such a deep perspective. I like myself a lot better. I'm kinder. I you know the person who was having this normal healthy baby was just going to go straight back to work you know I was taking 12 months off but I'd also thought I'd probably just take you know probably take three to six months off because I was going to go straight back to work and then I'd pop into my Pilates class and just like you know be this yummy (laughs) mummy and that person was probably a bit shallow you know I lived a really charmed and beautiful life I'd traveled and done all these things having a deep sorrow or a deep loss changes you and it can change you for the worse, can change you for the better. Um, for me, I, I experienced a lot of post-traumatic growth out of it and I, it doesn't make it okay. Again, it's just something that sits alongside that. And I am grateful for this person. I prefer this person.
1: Yeah. it's It's such a common thing when people have gone through the, been dragged through the mud to come out and, mm-hmm. and have this newfound appreciation for who they are. So that's so amazing to hear. What do you do these days to support yourself? Do you still do therapy or do you engage in self-care? Are there things that you still do? Because I, as you said, this pain doesn't go away. What do you do for yourself?
0: So after Lily died, I did a lot of self-care and I was pregnant and just, you know, in this crazy zone. And I, we did see a psychologist. We, we still have a counsellor um, from very special kids. They provide this incredible service where you get a counsellor for life if you need them. Um, And it's funded by them. So it's not someone I speak to all the time, but just knowing that I've got that person there is really helpful. I don't have to get back into the system or go and get a referral. It's just there. Such an awesome model um and I try yeah to kind of keep my self-care going so I did like after Lily died I was doing regular facials and massage which really helped me just have some time I'd spent 10 months caring and being a nurse and a doctor around the clock um I don't don't do as much of that now Jasper definitely takes a lot of time up but Yeah, I try to still keep some of that going Um, and exercising is really important for me too. I do acupuncture. I've just taken that back up again, which really helps with like anxiety and stress too. Um, And I find if I don't exercise, then I don't sleep. If I don't sleep, my mind spirals. So. But exercise, you know, it's that struggle forever for everyone. (laughs) Yes.
1: Now, Priyanka, my final question, and it's the same question I ask all of my guests, is that what would the Priyanka now in front of me tell the Priyanka in her darkest, most difficult moments?
0: I would say it will be okay, but I would also give that person permission to feel shit and permission to feel like they've given up because there was a real struggle to acknowledge, like, actually I'm at rock bottom. Um, So it's okay to be at rock bottom and it's okay to be angry and upset and scared and resentful, but you will come through it, it will be better. And having a child with a disability isn't the worst thing in the world? It, it's actually going to be amazing and wonderful, and you're going to look back on that time with so much happiness and love and joy. Um, yeah, make the most of it.
1: Oh my gosh, your strength is so admirable. I'm just in awe of you. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for sharing <laughs> you. everything you have shared with us. I know some questions must have been very difficult to answer, but you're just such a beacon of strength and inspiration. (laughs) So thank you, yeah, for being so vulnerable with me and this podcast. Thank you again. (laughs) Thank you so much. I love being part of it. Oh, good. Well, yeah, I can't wait to get this one out there. So you've got to get Jasper to swimming lessons. I've got to let you go, but um, (laughs) we'll chat so
0: soon. (laughs) Thanks so much. Yep, speak soon.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. As mentioned at the beginning, 24-Hour Help is available through SANS on 1300 637 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you'd like to support this form of positive media, please hit subscribe, five stars, leave a review, share it on social media, or perhaps share this interview with a fellow parent you know who has been through something similar. All of it really helps. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, stay well.